The world is burning up. Last year was the hottest on record, and this year is forecast to be even hotter. California is on fire. Powerful storms are crisscrossing the world, wreaking havoc on our lives and causing massive displacement of people. We know what's causing it, and we know what the solution is. We have to stop doing what we're doing. We have to stop extracting, transporting, and burning fossil fuels to create energy. But the oil and gas industry doesn't want to do that. Instead, they're busy devising and promoting elaborate, expensive, and completely unworkable schemes that are designed not to actually address the problem, but only to distract us from real solutions so they can keep drilling. This is how the energy industry and our elected officials are addressing the most existential issue humanity has ever faced. This is how they are addressing climate change. And this is Green Street. Hello and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what's really going on in this world, how it affects you and your family and what you can do about it. On today's show, we'll talk with one of the country's leading environmental health experts, a scientist and author whose books have won numerous awards and who's not afraid to put her body literally in harm's way to stand up for what she believes and for the benefit of all of us. It was Dr. Sandra Steingraber who led New York's historic and successful fight against fracking and who is now leading the way to defeat the oil industry's new plan to capture carbon dioxide, transport it thousands of miles through special pipelines and pump it into their depleted oil fields under high pressure. Carbon capture and storage, as the industry calls it, is their answer to climate change that conveniently allows them to keep drilling, transporting, and selling their fossil fuel to make money for their investors. It's the classic tale of greed versus good, and Dr. Steingraber will tell you all about it right after Patty gives us the headlines from the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Uh, this is a, a Bill McKibben piece, one of our friends who is doing unbelievable work uh, in the world. And uh, the title here is The Richest University in the World Capitulates After a Decade of Activism. The end came, as ends often do, quietly. Harvard President Larry Bacow released a letter to Harvard students, faculty, and alumni. He didn't use the word divestment. That would have been too humiliating. But he did say that the richest university on earth no longer had any direct investments in fossil fuel companies and that its indirect investments through private equity funds would be allowed to lapse. This is more or less precisely what divestment activists have demanded of the university for a decade. It was one of the first big campaigns mounted as divestment became a worldwide phenomenon. But Harvard was always the sturdiest opponent Way back in 2013, Harvard President Drew Faust threw down a stiff rebuke to campaigners. The university, President Faust said, would never instrumentalize its endowment. Quote, conceiving of the endowment not as an economic resource, but as a tool to inject the university into the political process or as a lever to exert economic pressure for social purposes can entail serious risks to the independence of the academic enterprise. The endowment is a resource, not an instrument to impel social or political change. 
Logic and experience indicate that barring investments in a major integral sector of the global economy would, especially for a large endowment reliant on sophisticated investment techniques, pooled funds, and broad diversification, come at a substantial economic cost, end quote. Harvard stuck with that decision year after year, as Cambridge and Oxford divested, as the University of California system divested, as pension funds from Norway to New York divested, as the Pope and the Queen of England divested, and as generations of undergraduates, faculty, and alumni kept up the fight. I remember sleeping in the shrubbery outside Massachusetts Hall where the president's office sits and occupying the alumni office. I never really believed that they'd capitulate because I knew they feared that some graying member of the class of 47 would write them out of his will. But the tide has shifted. For one thing, it's become completely clear that Faust was wrong financially. Fossil fuel has dramatically underperformed every, every other part of the economy for a decade. Had Harvard divested when we first asked, they'd have even more money than they do now. The endowment is worth $40 billion, give or take. And for another, it's simply no longer possible to pretend you can keep going with business as usual. Harvard students of the future are the Greta Thunberg generation. They just won't allow the both sidesing of the greatest question of their lives. When we fight, we often win, even if it takes a while. It's not easy to keep a fight going at a college. The administration counts on the steady turnover of students to dampen ardor. But class after class, Harvard kids kept the pressure on. Just yesterday, as the Harvard Crimson reported, they were rallying once more as the new freshman class arrived. Their victory matters enormously, precisely because Harvard was so recalcitrant. Yeah, okay, the, the, the endowment of Harvard is 40 billion, give or take, $900 million. Oh, it's actually take $900 yeah, it's, million? it's actually $40 billion, $929 million. That's their endowment. I love it. You know, I love that phrase, phrase both sidesing. We've talked about yeah. that for a while, where, oh, on the one hand this, and on the other hand that, and, you right. know, a, a lot of newspapers and news outlets try to play both sides of the story, mm -hmm. but when something as important as climate change comes oh, along... Oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I am, I, I am completely dedicated to, you know, protecting the the retirement, you know, fund or the pension plans of all the state employees so I can't possibly divest from fossil yeah. fuels. Yeah. Well, actually, that's not true, is it? Right. They would have done better if they had They would have done better if they hadn't. Oh, well. Good. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So this is, a, uh, this is another article really important because I happen to know this person. It's adapted from an article by Carrie Gillum and printed in The Guardian. It's entitled, Former EPA Official Speaks Out Ahead of Whistleblower Hearing. According to former EPA officials, the agency is falsifying risk assessments for dangerous chemicals and failing to protect children by ignoring toxins in the environment, focusing instead on corporate interests. Dr. Ruth Edsel, a former director of the EPA's Office of Children's Health Protection, will testify this week that the agency tried to silence her because she insisted on stronger preventions against lead poisoning. The people of the United States expect the EPA to protect the health of their children, but the EPA is more concerned with protecting the interests of polluting industries, she said in a report published in The Guardian. The harm being done to children is irreparable. 
Edsel is among five current or former EPA administrators and scientists who have come forward with allegations that the agency, which is supposed to regulate chemicals and other substances that may harm human health, has become deeply corrupted by corporate and political influence. According to Edsel, the agency has been pressured to make important assessments in ways that protect their jobs rather than protect the public. The whistleblowers are alleging a pattern of intimidation tactics the EPA used against its own scientists to protect corporate interests, even when doing so puts the public at risk. These problems have persisted even under the Biden administration. Dr. Edsel is a pediatrician and epidemiologist who joined the EPA in 2015 after serving as senior officer in the Department of Public Health and Environment at the World Health Organization in Switzerland. She also previously worked for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the U.S. Department of Agriculture and is well known as a global expert on children's health issues. Edsel helped start an initiative to accelerate the reduction of childhood exposure to lead from sources in air, water, soil, paint, and food. The federal lead strategy stalled, Edsel alleges, after the 2016 election of Donald Trump when the EPA came under the direction of Administrator Andrew Wheeler. Edsel filed her whistleblower complaint against the EPA in November 2018, alleging that her determination to push the initiative forward, including publicly complaining about EPA delays, triggered retaliation. The EPA placed her on leave, demoted her, cut her pay, fabricated complaints against her, and conducted a smear campaign aimed at humiliating her and undermining her career and professional stature, according to her complaint. The EPA also blocked opportunities for her to speak at professional conferences, she alleges. Internal EPA email communications included as evidence in the case shows that initial questions from media about Edsel's administrative leave drew curt responses declining to comment on, quote, personnel matters, end quote. But as media inquiries about Edsel mounted, a top EPA public affairs official wrote to the EPA press secretary and other public affairs officers, quote, this is our opportunity to strike, end quote. Then in an email thread with the subject line, push this around ASAP, please, public affairs officials agreed to a stronger updated statement about Edsel that said she was placed on administrative leave because of serious reports made against her by staff that were very concerning. The old playbook was attack the science, Edsel told The Guardian. The new playbook is destroy the scientists. The American Academy of Pediatrics and more than 100 other public health-oriented organizations and institutions sent a letter in 2018 to the EPA protesting the removal of Edsel, who has received multiple national and international awards for scientific integrity and advocacy in recent years. The EPA said there were numerous complaints about Edsel's management, including complaints that she used explicit language, failed to follow agency HR policy, and unable to control her emotions and often would bully others. In a statement to The Guardian, the EPA said, quote, This administration is committed to ensuring all EPA decisions are informed by rigorous scientific information and standards. Retaliation against employees who report alleged violations is not tolerated at EPA, end quote. Paula Dinnerstein, a lawyer with the group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, which is representing Edsel, said the EPA still has not taken action to implement the lead protection strategy and has acknowledged the libelous claims against Edsel were not substantiated. The Biden administration should not only reinstate Edsel to her previous position, but should also take steps to address the deeper problems revealed by whistleblowers, Dinerstein said. Edsel and other EPA whistleblowers have exposed EPA's timidity and industry capture. 
The Biden administration has said a lot of the right things and has taken some good steps, but it will take a lot of effort and pressure to ensure they right the wrongs of the past. Poor Ruth Edsel. They really put her through the ringer. Yes, they did. I mean, this is somebody that you and I know. She uh-huh. actually gave you that 2016 Children's Environmental Health Award. Well, she was part of that committee, yes. Yeah. But, you know, this is this is a person with in with almost impeccable yeah. You it's know, standards light. and commitment to the jobs that she that she is uh, yeah. is hired to do, and she is uh, she's not the only one, but she is being targeted because of her integrity. Well, they picked the wrong person because she's got steely resolve, and she's not going to be pushed around by those people. So, well, good for we'll her. See what happens. We wish her all the best. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. There's not much doubt about the causes of climate change, unless you're one of the politicians in Congress who thinks they can get re-elected if they tell people they can still drive their gigantic gas-guzzling SUVs and pickup trucks and run their air conditioners all day long in the summer even when nobody's home. Lots of Americans just want to hear good news and they don't like it when someone says, you can't do that anymore. Well, our guest today on Green Street has never been afraid to tell big industries they can't do that anymore. Dr. Sandra Steingraber grew up in the Midwest. She was diagnosed with bladder cancer at a very young age, and as she tells the story, cancer ran in her family. Her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 44. She had uncles with colon cancer, prostate cancer, stomach cancer. Her aunt died of the same kind of bladder cancer that Sandra had, but Sandra Steingraber was adopted. She studied biology in college, earning her PhD and discovering the links between toxic chemicals and human health, and how the presence of these chemicals in environments such as the one where she grew up could cause bladder cancer and other diseases. Her award-winning book, Living Downstream, chronicles her effort to understand the root causes of her own cancer. If you haven't read Living Downstream, please do. Sandra Steingaber led New York's long but successful battle to prohibit fracking in the state and has become a leader in the fight to stop oil and gas companies from polluting our earth and exacerbating climate change. But she can't do that alone. She describes the battle this way. We are all musicians in a great human orchestra, and it is now time to play the Save the World Symphony. You are not required to play a solo, but you are required to know what instrument you hold and play it as well as you can. You're required to find your place in the score. What we love, we must protect. That's what love means. From the right to know and the duty to inquire flows the obligation to act. Here's our interview with Dr. Sandra Steingraber. I've been working as a scientist in the public interest for many years, and um, this spring I retired from Ithaca College. So at the age of 61, This is now the first year I've not been in the classroom since age five, so it's a um, big change for me. Uh But my retirement only lasted um, Memorial Day weekend, and the Tuesday after Memorial Day, I began my new position, which is as a senior scientist for the Science and Environmental Health Network. So this positions me in a shop full of other scientists, health professionals, and attorneys And we're a research center and a think tank, so our mission is to provide good science 
and legal resources to frontline communities who are fighting oil and gas extraction and associated infrastructure. And, and how is that being received? I mean, I, I truly believe that you, are, that you are providing good science, but we're living in a time where, you know, good science is being sidelined. Um, I haven't experienced that directly. Uh, I am in a position of being asked by communities to do more work than I can possibly do, mm-hmm. um, not only in the field that I know the best, which is environmental health effects from fracking, mm-hmm. but also um, part of my portfolio now is this n- new technology called carbon capture and storage, which is masquerading as a climate solution Mm -hmm. and in fact is being written into some federal legislation and written into policy from the Department of Energy um, as this kind of magical technology that sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. In fact, it's not that at all. It's a technique developed by the oil and gas industry for the purposes of actually getting more oil and gas out of the ground and is now kind of being dressed up in green clothing and pass off as uh, a climate solution, but it's, it doesn't work, it, and it, it's kind of fraudulent. Um, and sure. so there are communities now who are not only on the front lines of pipeline build-out for oil and gas pipelines, but now a massive build-out of carbon dioxide pipelines, um, which turn out to cause real health and safety threats. So mm-hmm. I've been deep in the data looking at carbon dioxide pipeline breaches and the public health threats so created and what happens when you have acute carbon dioxide poisoning, what it does to your body, and the short answer is it turns people into zombies, and um, they become intoxicated very quickly. And also it makes it impossible to escape because evacuations are prevented by the fact that CO2 displaces oxygen not only in our bodies, but also in our automobiles. So any you know internal combustion car needs oxygen <laughs> to burn the gasoline, and without it, your car stalls. So people who have been in these uh, pipeline breaches involving carbon dioxide leaking end up being found at the side of the road, foaming at the mouth, unable to speak, and their car is not able to go. So I'm, um, that's what I'm researching. So that's part of my portfolio. In addition to keeping up with all the science on the public health harms and the climate harms of fracking. So I'm super busy, and I feel that I can't get my research done fast enough for um, communities who are on the front lines who are, are seeking knowledge about this because these projects are tipping out faster than, and the, you know, the public hearings and the permits and everything. Um, sure. it, that's a very quick process, and people need to get up to speed on both the science of what the risks they're being asked to face so they can make an informed decision, but also, um, you know, uh, what kinds of, how, how can we intervene here? What, or what, how can mm-hmm. we stop this mm-hmm. from being built out? And for that, we, I really rely on my attorney colleagues who understand the permitting process and where the kind of legal Achilles heel these projects are. So mm-hmm. I wish that there were like 10 people who are doing my work. <laughs> because it's <laughs> yeah, hard for me to course. Yeah. keep up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, this is history repeating itself, right? So we're just looking for band-aids. We're looking for ways to fix the problem, not going to the source and stopping it. Um, yeah, it's another masquerade. I feel yeah. like carbon capture and storage uh, occupies the same kind of cultural and political space that fracking did mm-hmm. a dozen years ago. You know, it, 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 was being sold, it was being sold to us and marketed to us 
as a bridge to a clean energy future, the idea being that natural gas is this kind right. of invisible, clean thing, much cleaner than coal. And, and we, we could not leap right away from coal straight into renewables, so this is going to be this transition thing. And that was, you know, nobody ever meant that. That was just to pacify us. That was public mm, relations. Sure. And yep. the idea was to lay down a dependency on natural gas forevermore because they're, uh, you know, the return on investment for some of the technology, especially around, let's say, liquefied natural gas mm-hmm. terminals, mm-hmm. Is, is 40 years. So. Right. So we now know that we went out of the frying pan into the fire with fracking, that even though methane is an invisible gas, it's a much more potent um, greenhouse gas than CO2. And so we got ourselves in a worse situation at a time of climate emergency because we embraced fracking instead of pursuing a full-bore affair with uh, renewable energy. And so now, 12 years later, the, the sort of guild is off the fracking lily. Everyone knows that fracking is a climate disaster. And now comes along carbon capture and storage with sort of the latest magical thinking that is going to uh, serve as a lifeline to the oil and gas industry um, instead of doing what we really need to do, which is, of course, rapid decarbonization. So it just it's a dangerous distraction and it's a delay tactic. So I'm busy with my colleagues kind of laying out the case against carbon capture and storage, along with the case against fracking. Sandra, are there uh, kind of hotbeds of, uh, of, you know, where this is taking place? Like there were with fracking, or is it all over the country, or where's the hot spot right now? Yeah, there are hot spots. And so one of them is actually right through the Midwest. And part of the reason for that is because the Dakota Access Pipeline Pipeline, Corridor already runs there. And so the the rights of way um, that are already there. um, Also for Keystone, even though, you know, we all know what happened with Keystone, but the point is that the uh, rights of way still remain. They didn't revert. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Great Plains and the, and the Midwest is, a, is one hotbed area to build carbon dioxide pipelines, and they would be heading up to the Bakken oil shale. It's important to say that 80% of the carbon captured by carbon capture storage technology is actually used for something called enhanced oil recovery, meaning the carbon dioxide is pumped into the ground for the purpose of pushing out and and sort of making less dense oil in depleted oil fields. So it's not a form of fracking per se, but it's a form of getting sticky oil out of the rocks by pumping the rocks full of carbon dioxide. So yes, you're burying some CO2, but <laughs> you're, you're using it to get more oil out of the ground, which will be burned, right? Um, and 80% of the technology for carbon capture and storage is being used for enhanced oil recovery. Um, so I think that alone um, speaks volumes as to what its real intention is. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the idea mm-hmm. that we can capture the carbon from ethanol distilleries and then pump that to the Boston oil shale to get more carbon out of the ground wow. is a, um, this kind of Rube Goldberg-like apparatus that can attract taxpayer money in the form of subsidies in the reconciliation bill and so on. Um, And then both the ethanol industry and the fracking industry get to say that they're trading carbon and doing things with carbon that allows them to claim that they're wearing the mantle of climate pollution. Sure. Uh, But it's all a big kind of shell game. So that's one place. Um, The Louisiana corridor is another. Um, So that whole petrochemical complex down in Louisiana um, California is a third location that we've identified. Mm. Wow. So 
uh, Mark Jacobson. I think you are working with him. I think that you and Mark were on a, uh, a, a call. You were doing some kind of a, a, a presentation. I missed it. But how are you working with Mark? I, yeah, I am working with Mark. And in fact, um, this Friday, uh, September 17th, I'll, I'll be happy to get you the um, link for that. Okay. I and Mark and Dr. Uh, Ted Shetler, MD, mm-hmm. um, we are giving a, a webinar for um, journalists and uh, policymakers on carbon capture and storage technology and the ways in which it's um, not what it appears to be. And Mark Jacobson, as a climate scientist at Stanford, has really done the definitive work on um, just kind of breaking down the math on, you know, car- number of carbon dioxide molecules, where they're going, how much is really trapped for how long um and so he'll do the whole kind of carbon budget analysis um and then uh ted jetler will speak really closely to the public health impacts of these uh, people who live along the carbon dioxide pipeline route and i will kind of uh introduce the whole show wow so these are the same same people sandra who are subject to the compressor stations and the leaks coming from the the uh, natural gas pipeline. So they're, they're getting... That, that's correct, right. And so the carbon capture um, technology begins, for example, at a coal-burning power plant where you attach a machine to the smokestack to remove the CO2. Uh, so it's important to point out that all the other emissions from that smokestack still go into the community, which is almost sure. always a black, brown, indigenous, or impoverished rural white community, Mm -hmm. right? That's where Mm -hmm. these facilities are located. And so by taking the carbon dioxide out, but allowing all of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heavy metals like mercury, Mm -hmm. uh, benzene, vapors, Mm -hmm. and so forth to go into the community, you're actually making air pollution worse because you have to burn more coal or whatever it is you're combusting in order to run the carbon capture machine. So you get more of the bad hazardous air pollutants going into the community in order to capture all the carbon dioxide and put that in a pipeline and then you have to spend more energy compressing it into a liquid and then pushing it to let's say the Bakken oil shale or wherever you're taking it and so all along that route um, communities um, again you know the communities that we ask to live near uh, fossil fuel infrastructure are not rich communities and they tend not to be white communities so Carbon capture and storage, along with fracking and all the other infrastructure of um, the fossil fuel era, is an environmental justice issue. You're listening to Green Street, and our guest today is Dr. Sandra Steingraber, author, activist, and senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network. We'll be right back after this break. Well, there's only one place in the universe where life can bloom and grow. But we're doing our best to screw it up like we got somewhere else to go. Let me tell you the facts you may not like. It's only a matter of time. Till the ice all melts and water comes up. What we're doing is really a crime. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better. We got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess and mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. Well, plastic. 
plastic, elastic, it's so fantastic, but it never really goes away. It all ends up in the ocean somewhere, and it's all coming back someday. So just you mark my words, my friends, we're gonna have to pay the price. When we're buried in plastic ten feet deep, we're gonna end up paying twice. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better, we got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. So just keep on mining that coal, my friend. Keep burning that fossil fuel. When it hits 200 degrees outside, you better hope it can keep you cool. Cause our good old earth is burning up as anyone can see. Doing the same things over and over defines insanity. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better. We've got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. That song seems particularly apt for today's show. Our guest is Dr. Sandra Steingraber, senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network, and we're talking about climate change and the oil and gas industry's new carbon capture and storage plan. I'm interested, of course, as an ecologist in what happens after after the CO2 goes into the ground, because we know that the subterranean landscape below our feet are not just, you know, inert rock, just fire and brimstone. It's actually a living ecosystem down there in, in the dark heart of the planet. And uh, interesting thing about carbon dioxide is that when it is mixed with any kind of water, including just water vapor or any sort of moisture, uh, it, a carbon dioxide converts into carbonic acid. And that's, of course, the, the mechanism that, by which we know our oceans are in trouble from... Mm-hmm climate change because mm-hmm. all the carbon dioxide that we are loading up into the atmosphere and Correct. now we have 30 to 40 percent more in you know co2 in the atmosphere than we did before the industrial revolution that will diffuse as as everything does and 75 percent of our earth's surface is seawater and so right. when carbon dioxide enters the ocean it converts into carbonic acid and so by loading up the atmosphere with 30 percent more CO2, we have also acidified the ocean by 30%. And we are now rapidly approaching the tipping point in the ocean by which calcium carbonate will actually turn from a solid into, it will dissolve. It will just uh, not be a solid anymore, right? And so anything that's made of a shell is made of calcium carbonate. So that means barnacles, diatoms, corals, shellfish. Oh, your shellfish. Um, they're basically starting to dissolve. And so you're just starting to yeah, destroy so we, a, we, yeah, a, a, a food source for... Well, yes, yeah, a food source for a big chunk of people. Yeah. And, you know, also just the whole marine ecosystem is threatened because everything depends on d- diatoms. And um, and also, we, we now know that even sharks, they don't have scales the way other fish do. And the teeth and the, and the skin of sharks are, is starting to dissolve because of the acidity of the ocean. So 
we have made the ocean so acid that the, the creatures living in it are starting to dissolve. And so we, we actually have very good data on all of this. So I am very interested as an ecologist in, in now thinking about what happens when you pump CO2 directly in the ground in terrestrial systems because it will also convert to carbonic acid. And then if you have rock like limestone, which is made up of, of limestone represents prehistoric sea creatures, you will dissolve the limestone, and then that forms pathways for the CO2 to escape either back into the atmosphere or um, this acidity can get into above uh, the, the, the groundwater drinking aquifers that lie above the layer where you're injecting the CO2. It turns out that the deep heart of our planet is alive. It, I mean, in a metabolic sense. I'm speaking as a biologist now, not in like a Gaia goddess mm -hmm. kind of way, but yeah, yeah, metabolically yeah. there are many... Um, deep life organisms. They occupy an ancient domain of life called Archaea, and they live down there. A and if you change their pH, that changes everything. And it looks like it, um, uh, toxic substances that are actually bound up with the rock that aren't hurting anybody. When you, when you acidify things and change this ecosystem by adding CO2, you can free up things like uranium, arsenic, lead, and so you're mobilizing all these elements that have a rightful place in the periodic chart of elements, as we all learned them in chemistry class, and most of those um, toxic elements are actually held in deep geological strata, and they're not hurting anybody. But if we pump that geological strata full of CO2, we can mobilize those elements, and, um, and they start moving around. They move, we know they move horizontally. Um, I'm looking to see if they can move vertically, especially through maybe abandoned well shafts, and enter, and enter drinking water sources. And also just, I guess the theological part of it for me is to think about these organisms, the archaea, who are down there altering the habitat to suit themselves. So even though they're ancient organisms, they can form complex colonies and actually form big networks and shoot nanowires out into the surrounding rock. And um, in a word, they um, deal with oxidative stress by shooting um, electrons into the surrounding rock. That's just how they metabolize, right? But by doing that, they're actually altering the rock itself. And so, basically, the, <laughs> these biological archaea are creating, they're in the act of creation of the Earth. They're, they're, it's mm. an ongoing act of creation mm. down there. Mm. And so we are taking the oil out, we're pumping it full of CO2, um, we're treating these deep geological strata as if they were just inert layer cakes deep under the ground, just a, mm -hmm. a warehouse, you mm -hmm. know, without life, that are, is just a dead place. And that, what I'm saying is that that's not true. They're living, they're living ecosystem. It's like there's a giant coral reef under the earth that we mm -hmm. walked over. And it's in some way continuing to create that earth. And we don't know everything about how it's connected to life here on the sunlit surface. Boy, it's so interesting. While we've been talking, I've been looking at carbon capture technology on the internet. The energy companies are so excited about this. You know, yeah, this is their invention, and so now, mm -hmm. and they have always used it to get more oil out of the ground, and now they get to claim credit. We rename it, like dress it up mm -hmm. <laughs> in yep. green mm -hmm. clothing and it, call it a climate solution. That's not what this is. I was just going to say this is greenwashing at its at its worst well, it's a or at its best, depending on how you're looking at it. A diversionary tactic to get people to, you know, start talking about carbon capture technology that will allow us basically to continue right. life as usual mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and don't worry about right. it. Right. 
Yes. Well, that's... And, and of course, what they don't say is that there's no evidence that this CO2 will stay in the ground forevermore in perpetuity. I mean, if it stays in the ground for three to five years, they consider that good enough. Yeah. Uh, depleted oil fields is one place that we like to pump the CO2, but at some point you can overpressurize those systems and, and get yourself in trouble. And also in the Midwest, especially in my home state of Illinois, the plan um, is to pump it into deep brine aquifers. But in order not to overpressurize it, you have to take the brine out first, and then you have to store the brine somewhere else. There's a whole other technology for mm. brine management. Mm. And so this is why I think that I, this idea of this Rube Goldberg machine, right? It's like... Um, the apparatus that Professor Butts wears on his head, right, the self-operating napkin, where um, <laughs> you know, the spoon is tied to a string, which flips a cracker up to a parrot who dumps some seed into a bowl, which sets off a rocket, which cuts a string, which allows a pendulum to swing a napkin back and forth across his face. And, and, and Rube Goldberg, the cartoonist, invented these machines so that we would see the folly of elaborate solutions to do something that requires a really simple solution. And he was doing this at a time of rising fascism in Europe as a Jewish uh, American political satirist who saw this elaborate attempt at diplomacy to appease Hitler and Mussolini fail. And then later he saw, um, he was a very big critic of the atomic age and saw how peace was being rethought as mutually assured destruction and how the whole earth civilization was kind of balancing on the back of nuclear missiles and all their elaborate chain reactions that would create unstoppable consequences. So his cartoon... <laughs> about these, that created these fanciful, improbable, unworkable in real life machines were a kind of satirical critique of that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then, of course, it became popularized in the 1960s, and even the game, the board game Mousetrap, right? Remember Mousetrap mm -hmm. in the 60s? Was a Rube Gold, actual Rube Goldman machine yeah. reimagined as a game, a parlor game that we could all play. But the point was that you were supposed to realize how ridiculous it was to trap um, to catch a mouse by having you know a ball ro roll down uh, a chute that sent a diver into a, a, a bathtub which set this off and that off and so forth <laughs> and, and it all it, this kind of complication yeah. came out of his um, real concern that we had complicated the idea of peace by all this nuclear weaponry yeah. and uh, I think it's a really good metaphor for our time right now because the oil industry's solution is instead of let's just stop drilling oil and gas and stop lighting fossils on fire and loading up our atmosphere of heat trapping gases instead let's build this whole big you know apparatus to suck some of the carbon out of the emission stream and bury it here and then take the brine that used to be buried there and put it over here and it's all going to be very expensive, but we can take all our taxpayer money and make it work that way. And, and then all the money that could have been spent uh, to transform the economy into renewable energy is now being redirected to do this very elaborate move the carbon around thing uh, and add it on to the fossil fuel apparatus, which is already complicated.
So we have, uh, I'm sure, PR firms working at top speed here. And, you know, for oh, the... Oh, yeah, for the, they've been working for a very oh, yeah. long time. Uh, so yeah. for the general public, they understand a couple of things. They understand that carbon dioxide is, is one of the things that is, you know, it, it's a greenhouse gas. Okay, it's one of, the, one of the things that's warming the planet and creating climate change and all these weather events that are, you know, pretty horrific. And they also understand that if you use that same thing, if you're capturing it, you're capturing it, so you're actually keeping it from going into the atmosphere. So that that sounds good. That sounds good it to sounds the general good. public. Yeah, it sounds really title. good. Yeah, it's a very clever yeah. title. You're going to capture it, and you're going to you're going you're going to you're going to stop this process. And that's all people are really going to understand. So how do you get? Yeah. How do you put what you're doing and and Ted and Carolyn and all these other people that you're working with at at SEHN and and also concerned health professionals of New York? I want to talk to you a little bit about that in a minute. But how do you, in very simple terms, educate the public uh, about what's really what's really going on? Right. Well, we're all putting our heads together and kind of at the very beginning of this process, right? I think one of the ways that we were actually able to do it with fracking was the, um, our decision. And by our, I, I mean um, the anti-fracking movement in its infancy mm-hmm. recognized the value in taking the word that was the official name for this thing, high-volume slick water hydraulic fracturing, and discovering that the guys who are actually out on the field actually doing this, their nickname for this whole thing was fracking, which they spelled with two C's, right? And so we changed one of the C's to a K because that made it sound bad. Right. And we started pushing that out in our narrative. And, of course, the gas industry was furious, and they kept telling us we didn't know how to spell. But now (laughs) we changed the narrative. (laughs) And so it became a meme, right? And so yeah, every journalist right, now spells right. fracking with a K, and Absolutely. we know it's bad, right? right? And so it became, because it has that F and then the CK in it, yep. it became, that it sounded just bad. And right. so we kind of won that, and I give lots of credit to Josh Fox, who played a big role. He's, yeah. uh, you know, as a filmmaker and kind of as a cultural artist in this moment, very, sees how that works really clearly. And then, of course, in his film, Gasland, the um, the scene of the of water on fire, right? That that yep. made people yep. realize there's something really bad about this. If water right. can get, be a flame, yeah. that right. just seems so backwards and horrible. Right. And so we we need to think about how to take this very clever, banal sounding word, carbon capture and storage, mm-hmm. um, and show how it's really a carbon shell game that allows the oil and gas industry to um, keep doing what they're doing. So I've just written my first essay about it. It will come out this week, um, and we're continuing to do um, webinars on it. I I would say the good thing is that because of our success at at revealing the the scam that was fracking and how it didn't help the climate at all but was was swinging a wrecking ball at the climate, that people are much quicker this time around to qu- quickly identify carbon capture and storage as the scam that it is. So it, it seems to be, at least my feeling right now, is that there's so much momentum in going toward renewables that it's really hard to distract people a second time. It's kind of like fool me once, right, mm-hmm. with fracking. Yeah. So I'm not seeing people blithely marching down the path of, oh, yes, carbon capture and storage is going to 
save us now. I, I see a lot more skepticism and I'm a lot more distrust of the oil and gas industry. Also, the, you know, the economics of this just don't add up, right? And so mm. by the only way that you can keep a gas-fired power plant or a coal plant going with carbon capture and storage is to make the electricity even more expensive. expensive exactly. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, and you can cover that with tax subsidies, I suppose, but at the same time, the falling price of electricity generated by renewable sources, especially now as battery storage gets up and running, um, you know, you can keep throwing subsidies at carbon capture and storage, but at some point, it's just not economical anymore to just keep blasting oil and coal out of the ground and lighting it on fire to mm. keep the lights on. Yeah. So that that trend is working in our favor, too. I know we want to talk about uh, other things, but before we leave this, I just had a technical question. I know that... Um, you know that that there were earthquakes uh, that were traced to this idea of pumping stuff back into the earth, and I'm wondering if the same thing is true of of carbon capture. Yeah, yes, it is, and that's uh, again a small body of data that I'm uh, actively looking at right now. But mm-hmm. that that does seem to be a- an issue. You know, and it's just like anything else; you're just kind of changing pressures, and there are faults and fissures that mm-hmm. are kind of locked. Mm-hmm. There and you can easily um, unlock these things and cause seismic activity. So, yeah, that's um, that's another thing. I mean, we we do believe at Science and Environmental Health Network that the Achilles heel of this whole project is really the CO2 pipelines, and that's again because um, of just plain old physics, right? So, if you burn a ton of coal, you get two tons of carbon dioxide created. So, if you capture that and put it in a pipeline. Even if you liquefy it, just the sheer volume of CO2 that we have to move across America and then bury is just, it's, it's mind-boggling, mm, right? Mm-hmm. If, um, overnight, if we go through with this, there will be more pipelines carrying CO2 than there are oil and gas pipelines. Um, and those pipelines can't be the same crappy quality that oil and gas pipelines are because yeah. if there's any moisture that gets into the gas, it will become corrosive, right? It turns into an acid. So you actually have to line these pipelines with chrome. You basically have to have stainless steel yeah. pipelines in order to carry this mm. stuff. Otherwise, it's just it's just going to corrode. And so, I mean, that's a huge expense, but it also means that just massive amount of pipeline corridors are have to, going to have to be created through all these different communities. And, and, you know, the federal government may think that this is a great idea, but you still need local permits. Sure. Um, anytime you lay uh, lay pipeline, and then all of the people in those communities are placed at risk. And we have one amazing example from uh, the year 2020 in Yazoo County, Mississippi, where there was a pipeline breach, and 200 people tried to evacuate. It, mm. um, this cloud of CO2 spread through the town. No one, of course, it was invisible. No one knew what was wrong. What happened? First responders were sent in to try to help people get out, and then their vehicles stopped running. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so 43 people ended up in the hospital, and, and weeks later, a lot of those people still required oxygen. They had terrible PTSD because breathing in CO2 instead of oxygen not only causes your body to go into acidosis, but it creates a kind of sensation they call oxygen hunger, which kind of uh, induces panic. Pa- I was just um, going to say, and- panic, yeah. Yeah, and so wow. at the same time, people become <clears throat> intoxicated and can't form a sentence. They foam at the mouth. And so these 
Sarah's deputies found people wandering across the landscape like it was the zombie apocalypse, right? And then they tried to get them into emergency vehicles and evacuate them, and then cars were sputtering. And so it was just a kind of a terrible situation. And so I'm interested in, there's been some good journalism now in HuffPost with uh, lots of interviews of the people who survived that. I'm really interested in the power of human storytelling and bringing that um, the story of what happened in Yazoo County, Mississippi, when one of these pipelines breached. And in that case, it happened because of extreme rainfall causing like a lot of soil erosion. And of course, we know we're going to be in for more extreme (laughs) weather, right? And And especially extreme rainfall. Yeah, that's right. that is right. that is a that is something that scientists are beginning to understand that, you know, this is one of the the major problems with um, with with this climate and where it's going. If we're going to have these extreme rainfall events. I mean, we yeah. had, I mean, we've we've been in our house for what, 40 some years and we've never had our flooded basement. Our basement flooded in like one hour. It yeah, I believe you. And even even where I live, and we, I wasn't part of that Hurricane Ida um, storm happily, but this summer has been so wet, and I live on the highest point in my village, um, and I had a flooded basement this summer, too. That was um, yeah. really unusual for us. And so if we don't build infrastructure that accounts for that, then we're just creating accidents that are going to happen. Happily, I want to say that there is, um, coming up in October, the week of Indigenous Peoples Day on um, October 10th, is a week of action down in Washington, D.C., in which there will be arrestable actions. Um, and each day has a different theme. Um, the whole um, campaign is being led by um, black and indigenous women um, and their allies. And Thursday, is a day devoted to exposing false solutions. And of course, carbon capture and storage is, uh, along with fracking, are wolves dressed up in sheep's clothing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're problems disguised as solutions. And so we will be um, highlighting that false solution. Um, And there's uh, a scientist's letter um, to President Biden exposing uh, these kind of things that we'll be coming out with uh, leading up to that. Action. So I think there is um, going to be very quickly a space that opens up in, in our culture and in our uh, political media to have a conversation that exposes these scams um, that are not solutions at all, but are rocks in the pocket um, for the renewable energy tra- transformation that we need. Um, so I'm excited about that. I, I just have to ask, Sandra, you know, the people on the other side are, are not stupid. There's a lot of financial people that are involved that are pushing carbon capture and storage. Why is it you think that smart people can't see the handwriting on the wall? They don't acknowledge what this what this is going to cost, the kind of the folly of the whole idea. Why are they so blind to this? Money. Um, well, I think it's money. I think it's corruption. Um, I yeah. don't, they are and smart. Jobs. And jobs. Uh, well, there's no jobs in this. So, I mean, the, I guess there's some pipe sitting jobs, but mm-hmm. there's much, many more jobs on the other side sure. and with renewable, renewable. energy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, look, the, the, the fossil fuel industry controls m- many levers of our government, and they do so by campaign donations and lobbying. I mean, there's a, a million ways that they insert themselves in this political process. And so we know for a fact that Exxon has been working very closely with, um, Congress to, to insert these things in the reconciliation bill. They, they work very closely with the Department of Energy um, to make 
carbon capture and storage part of their policy. So these are fossil fuel generated ideas that have been inserted into our political blueprint because of um, the, the, the huge amount of money that the fossil fuel industry still has and their longstanding power over um, different parts of our government. But I'm, I feel confident in saying that outside of that um, alliance, which is I'm not diminishing the power of it, but independent scientists and the general public if they're hearing the straight evidence and not receiving propaganda, um, people are not being fooled very quickly this time. And I feel optimistic about that piece of it. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) I'm really glad that you feel optimistic about it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I feel like there's so much corruption in Washington on, you know, in so many different agencies and uh, just because of the lobbying power that they have, uh, really tough, um, you know, carbon capture. Yeah, that, look, no, no doubt this is going to be a tough fight, right? Yeah, and I yeah. think it will, it will be a ground war. It will be pipeline by pipeline. Mm. And um, But um, I think we are lucky that, you know, look, fracking went on for years in places like western Texas and Wyoming, where very few people live. And by the time it came to populated areas and made the rest of us pay attention, um, the, the whole technology was already, you know, the financing was there, but the technology was perfected, was all rolling out. We, we are catching this in an earlier mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. There yes. is no mm-hmm. wide-scale carbon capture storage. In fact, there is no carbon and capture storage that has ever worked. It's all been a failure. The largest capture and, uh, carbon capture and storage project in Australia um, just completely failed by their own admission. So it's, this is an unworkable idea. Um, we can't point to any success. Um, and this, so, this is good. I mean, we, you know, good, I'm, right. I'm thinking that the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry, is looking at the at plastics and carbon capture as ways to, you know, to to move forward and and to you know to keep keep making money. And we have to fight well, both that, of that, them. That's true. And and carbon capture, in a, you know, eighty percent of it we know is being of the carbon dioxide is being used to put, get more oil out of the ground. But the, a lot of the, the other remaining 20% is to take the CO2 into the petrochemical industry and turn it into plastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, binding up carbon in plastic is not is also not a permanent solution because as soon as that's incinerated, as soon as it's landfilled, I mean, it does, you get carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere. So that's also only kind of a temporary shape-shifting way yeah. of yeah. of kind of yeah. uh, laundering CO2, right? It's a big laundering operation. <laughs> yes. It is. <laughs> well, Sandra, we're almost out of time. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for joining us. It's an honor to talk to you. And, um, you know, let's get back on the phone again soon because there's a lot more ground I'm sure we want to cover. Yeah, and, uh, my great pleasure. Yeah, the Science and Environmental Health Network is a shop I have long admired. Yeah, and, we um, have to. to be, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and so to now be a senior scientist within that and have these folks who have who have been my heroes, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Ed Settler in, in public health, Carolyn, Carolyn Braffenberger, my, my new boss, yeah, in, in um, her whole ideas about the precautionary principle of transformational me, and now to be, you know, a member of that community is just a really dreamy thing for me. <laughs> so I'm glad to be there.
You've been listening to Green Street, the weekly environmental health show, and our guest has been Dr. Sandra Steingraber, Senior Scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network. If you missed any part of the show today, you can always listen again on our website, www.greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for program alerts and give us feedback on the show. The song we played today is called What Are We Doing?" written by yours truly and performed by my friend Flynn Cohen, part of a project we're working on together. Not out commercially yet, but hopefully soon. That's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>